Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. In Jerusalem, the Lord of Heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. In that day, the people will proclaim, This is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings. Kind of cool video, huh? That uh, reminds me of anyone watched the TV show Chef's Table? Anyone a fan of that show? Few people, all right, awesome. I was like hoping at least my wife would raise her hand because last night no one knew that show. Um, but it's basically a show about uh, beautiful food. It's like documentary style, uh, kind of similar to that. The crazy thing about this video though is that voice was AI generated. Whoa, kind of wild. Someone asked me before, I was like, how long before you're out of a job, Paul? If we can listen to that instead of listening to you, that's awesome. Uh, no, it's a cool video, but really it's setting up where we're going today because we are going to be looking at Isaiah 25. And Isaiah 25 is all about this feast that is the culmination of human history. Isaiah looks at the things going on in the world and he says there is a destination, a plot point for human history. And it is the greatest feast you could ever imagine. Uh, which I don't know about you, but for me, I love food. And so that sounds amazing. I, uh, I just think food is like the best. I love really good quality food. In fact, I really, like my heart's desire would be that every meal I eat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, would just like always be a feast. I love food. And I especially love food that, that tastes really great and is flavorful. And I was talking with some staff this week, and it turns out not everybody feels that way. There were a few people on staff who were like, yeah, food for me is kind of just, just fuel. Like, I just need to eat some stuff, and hopefully it's nutritious, and it just kind of, like, gets me from point A to point B. Anyone feel like that food is just fuel for you? Okay, a couple people. How many of you more resonate with me where, like, food is for flavor? Like, we, okay, all right, you are my people. I love it. All right, so th this is actually kind of a problem for me. Uh, my wife tends to be a little bit more food is fuel, and I tend to be food is flavor. So cooking is always like an adventure for us. Um, and it got to the point where like it was a little ridiculous. One night we were just making tacos, and I'm not talking like carnitas or asada tacos, just like beef tacos with like a little lettuce and cheese and tomatoes on top. And, and we got like halfway through cooking the meal, and I was like, oh, no. 
we don't have cilantro. Like we, we don't have, we, we got to scrap the whole thing. Like we got to start over. We don't have every single ingredient to make these the best tacos we've ever had. Then what are we doing? Why would we have tacos without cilantro? So I was like, either we scrap the meal or I need to go to the grocery store right now to go pick up cilantro. And I, I think in my wife in that moment, she was kind of even like, should I just stab you with this like knife or should I just like leave? Like, I don't know what to do with you. You're crazy. And it's fair. It's a little crazy. Uh, I love food. So when Isaiah in this chapter talks about this culminating feast of all of history, that, that it is going to be the feast to end all feasts, that the food is going to be unimaginable. It's going to be the very best wine you could ever imagine, the, the choicest meat, the, the most flavorful food you could ever taste or desire. Hey, it gets me excited about where we're going. But when you look at Isaiah, it feels like that feast is a long way off. When you just even look at the events of human history, it doesn't feel like most moments of every day are a feast. And see, Isaiah, he's looking at the events of his day, his his story, the, the nations that are rising and falling. And, and he looks out and he sees corrupt government officials who, who are incompetent and inept and only worried about taking care of themselves and getting what they can. And he sees a, a religious institution, the, the church of his day, and, and it's full of leaders who are corrupt and they're, they're misusing people and they're abusing people and they're misusing funds and, and they're just in religion to see what they can get out of it themselves. Not that dissimilar from, from the news stories we see of, of pastors who will use like church funds to go on extravagant vacations to Europe or, or the pastors who abuse congregation members and try to cover it up. Isaiah sees all of this taking place in his day and he says that there's something broken with the way humanity has chosen to organize itself. There's something wrong with the way humanity is existing. And so while we're destined for the feast, there is going to be a lot of suffering and a lot of chaos before we get to that destination. And what we see in Isaiah starting in chapter 13 through 24 is he looks out at all these nations and he looks out at, at Egypt and Tyr and Moab and Babylon and he says, all of these societies, all of these nations, all of these peoples have set themselves up in a way where it is causing chaos and suffering to, to exist in the world. In fact, he kind of creates this archetype of what humanity's rebellious nature against God looks like. And he calls it the city of man, the fortified city, the lofty city. And so he looks out at everything going on and he says, it looks chaotic. It looks like things are falling apart. It looks like things are being undone. There's violence and oppression and chaos. And then he makes this, this radical statement. In the midst of all that chaos, in the midst of all that ruin, in the midst of all that devastation, chapter 25, verse 1, Isaiah says, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name in the chaos. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. And I don't know about you, but when I look at the chaos, even of our own times, I mean, did, did anybody just like open Twitter yesterday or turn on the news and see what's going on in our world? This is not my response most days. Like everything looks like it's going according to God's perfect plan. 
that everything is happening exactly as God has drawn it up. In fact, most days when I see what's going on in the world, when I see the chaos around me, I wonder, God, where are you? Like, where are you in the mess of history? Where are you in this story? Where are you in my story? And Isaiah somehow is able to look at the exact same events in a world that doesn't look that dissimilar from our own. And he says, God, I see you exalted on your throne. He says, God, you are king in the midst of the chaos. And the question for us today is, is do we believe that? Can we, like Isaiah, say that God is king in the midst of the chaos we see in our world? Or do we just think that, that the story of history is some massive, like, unending story of, of trials and suffering and violence and oppression and nations rising against nations and groups of people falling and other people rising to power? Like, what do we see as the through line for history? Isaiah says that it's God seated on his throne, ruling over and in the midst of the chaos. The question is, how, how can he say that? How does he get to the place? And, and if you've been around Waterstone long, we are not afraid of asking some of the big questions. Because essentially, what this is boiling down to, is what do we do with the problem of evil in our world? How, how do we respond? How do we say that God is still good in the midst of the chaos and the violence and the oppression in the ways that we see humanity interacting with one another? What do we do with the stories of our own lives that seem so often to be full of chaos and suffering and sorrow? And can we still believe that God is good? One of the ways I think Isaiah gets there is through this series of, of 14 chapters. He uses this poetic archetype to explain why the world is the way that it is. And he uses this theme, and what he calls this theme is the, the lofty city, or the fortified city, or you may have heard it called the city of man. And what Isaiah essentially says is that the reason the world is the way it is is because people have set up themselves, they've organized themselves in such a way to live in the lofty city, the fortified city, in separation from how God has created and organized things. And so throughout these like 15 chapters, he uses this motif of the city of man. And he says there's really three characteristics that, that, that make up the city of man and how the city of man functions in our world. This metaphor and archetype for why the world is the way that we see it. And then the three things are the exaltation of self, concern for self, and ultimately death categorize the city of man. Now, what's interesting, I'm going to walk through each of those and kind of pull out some of the things Isaiah says about it. And we're going to go kind of, kind of deep into the themes of Isaiah today. And I'm going to ask you to stay with me as I kind of pull this thread together for you so we can end up in a place where we can see how Isaiah packages it all together. But here's the, the interesting thing about the city of man. It, it's this poetic archetype as, as Isaiah is talking about the city of man that's full of oppression and violence. And, and what he says is this. That Babylon, the great empire, and it's full of evil. And Egypt, and all of its evil. And Moab, and all of its evil. And all of its rebellion. And Jerusalem, the city that's supposed to be the city of God, all make up this archetype. What Isaiah is essentially saying is that when you look at the world, when you see the suffering and devastation and all of the chaos, 
You can't just point the finger at any one nation or any one group of people and say they're the problem. It's Egypt's fault. It's Babylon's fault. It's Russia's fault. It's China's fault. It's America's fault. He says that the reality is, is that all of humanity is set up to live in this city of man. All of us are a part of the problem. When, when you look at the suffering and evil in the world, you have to start with your own tribe, your own group, your own people, yourself. Which is a challenging place to start off with this motif. One of the challenges of the prophets is that they often expose us to the places that we are most blind to the things that we are doing in the world and the ways we are harming others and not living according to God's design. And so Isaiah says, we're all a part of the problem. And the reason that he says that is true is that when you look at the city of man and you look at the way humanity has organized itself, you, you see this theme where, where humanity continually and individuals continually exalt themselves to the place that was only meant for God. That, that we constantly try to place ourselves in the space that was reserved for God and his holiness, his majesty, and, and, and his enthronement. We essentially remove God from the throne and we place ourselves on the throne. We say that, that it's not about what God wants for our lives. It's about what we want for our lives. That God doesn't set the limits for what's right and wrong in our lives. God doesn't tell us what's good or what's evil. We get to define those things for ourselves. That, that we place ourselves where only God was meant to be enthroned. And this radical exaltation of self leads to a place where, where people really only have a concern for themselves. Because think about it, if, if you're the one who gets to define your own identity, if you get to define what's right or wrong for you, if you get to, to set the course of your life and say what your purpose is and what your value is, and no one speaks into that, then, then the natural conclusion of that is, is you are only consumed and worried about yourself making sure that, that your needs are met, making sure that all of the things you want and desire, pursuing your own happiness, and other people just get in the way of your happiness, right? They, they prevent you from getting what you want and what you desire. And so Isaiah looks at the world and he says, that we see just this everywhere in the city of man where people misuse and abuse others where they use people to get their own satisfaction, where they oppress and are apathetic to the needs of others because everyone is simply concerned about getting what they want and what they need. And he essentially says that that, that radical individualism, that radical concern for self leads to only one place, death and decay and destruction. Because if everybody's just trying to grab what they can and if everybody has this scarcity mentality that they're trying to take care of themselves and not look out for anyone else, then, then the only place that can naturally lead to is violence and oppression and injustice and mistreating and abusing those around us as we pursue our own desires, as we pursue the things that we think will make us happy. It's not hard for us to see how, how that kind of paradigm, the way Isaiah sees the world playing out in our own time, is it? I mean, when you think of this idea of exaltation of self, this pride and arrogance of saying, I can define what's right or wrong for my life. I don't need God to define good or evil for me. I can set that for myself. 
And we see that all around our society. In many ways, the fundamental lie of our culture is that we don't need God because we can define how we can be happy for ourselves. And it leads to this place where we can have this, this concern for ourselves and, and this fundamental ethos of our society is that if you pursue your own happiness, if you try to just chase after your dreams, you will get what you desire. If you just work hard enough, if you just put the right habits in place, if you just put the right routines in place, and if you pursue your goals hard enough, you will find the thing that you are longing for. You will find what it is you desire. I feel like sometimes I look at society and I think about that, that moment on an airplane when the, the, the flight attendant will come by and they'll say something like, hey, uh, I see you're sitting next to this person. Maybe it's a young child or maybe it's someone who doesn't seem like they can take care of themselves. And they say, hey, make sure you put your mask on before you help the person next to you. Make sure you take care of yourself before you take care of the person next to you. And the intent behind that is that, yeah, you need to make sure that you can breathe and that everything is all right and so that you can help the person next to you who can't help themselves. But it seems like we've just kind of like blown that up on a grand scale in our society and we're really good at trying to take care of ourselves and getting what we need and, and pursuing our own happiness. But then when it comes to the person next to us who's suffocating, we're like, I don't know if I can help you yet. I'm not sure if I'm getting enough oxygen. Like, I don't know if I have everything I need, so I, I just got to keep taking care of myself, and then eventually I'll get to you. And we've just blown up this concern for self where, where everything in our lives is about, and all the narratives in our culture are about pursue what you want and what you desire and find your own happiness. And the problem is, is, is that we're finding that, that pursuit of our own happiness, that pursuit of what we desire, that, that fixation with trying to meet our own needs is leading to death and to destruction and to decay. You see, it, it makes a lot of sense. You, you think that if you get what you desire and you take care of yourself, then that'll lead to the life you want. And what so many different people are, are studying and finding in our society, that it, the opposite is actually true. That studies are revealing the more we live for ourselves, the more we have less concern for others, the more that we pursue our own happiness and our own fulfillment and our own desires, the more it leads us to a place where no one is concerned for the common good or for the well-being of others, and we're so individually focused that it's causing things in our world to fall apart and unravel and creating chaos. In fact, uh, one of the, the best books I read in the last few years, is, it's called You Are Not Your Own. Um, it's by a guy named Alan Noble. If you were interested in it, I would be happy to buy you a copy. It is one of the best books that I've read in the last year. And essentially the premise of his book is that we are all pursuing like full-fledged. We are going full bore. We are chasing after our own happiness and our, our, the pursuit of our dreams. And it is leaving us in a place where we are miserable where life has no meaning, where, where we are getting all of the things that we desire and the things that we think we want. And it's leaving us in a place of emptiness and isolation and loneliness. And so we're seeing the rise of, of deaths of despair 
and suicide and opioid use and, and individualism and people who are, 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 are isolated and lonely because they have only been concerned about themselves and their tribe and making sure they're protected. In fact, I was listening to a podcast recently, it's a very popular podcast, and he was interviewing this guy who his soul, I'm not even going to give you the, the name of the guy that was being interviewed because there's just so much debauchery surrounding this person. But, but the premise of his life, the sole purpose of his life is the pursuit of pleasure and happiness. And so what that looks like for him is, is he's made millions of dollars gambling and selling marijuana to whoever will buy it and creating this social brand about this pursuit of pleasure. And, and his life from the outside looks incredible. It's private jets. It's sleeping with any model he wants to. It's it's wealth, it's, it's parties, it's driving all these cars, shooting all these massive guns. Like he is living the American dream of what it means to be a man. And in this interview, they asked him like, what makes you happy? And he had no answer. His entire pursuit, the entire purpose of his life is pleasure seeking and happiness. And you know what he said? He said that it's, it's a zero-sum sum game. The, the more I pursue pleasure, the less pleasure I feel. And he said, well, what, what actually makes you happy? And he said, I don't know, sometimes surfing. That, that was the extent of his happiness. He is living out what every social influencer and what every Instagram person and what our society tells us will lead to our happiness, and he is miserable. He is dying, and he can't find a way out. And there seems to be this belief in our culture that if we just kind of eliminate the things that hold us back, if, if we can eliminate those things that are an inconvenience to us, then we will somehow end up in a place where we are happy. And, and what Isaiah sees as he looks at the city of man is the exact opposite is true. That the more we pursue those things, the more we are after our own self-gratification and self-fulfillment, it leads to a place of emptiness, death, and isolation. And so he looks at the chaos of the world and he looks the, at the way things are unraveling. He says, this is the heart of it. We have exalted ourselves to the place of God. We have defined good and evil for ourselves. We are pursuing our own happiness, our own satisfaction, our own fulfillment. And it's leaving us with all of this chaos and suffering and sorrow and death. And the, the challenge of Isaiah is that when he sees that, he says not only is it headed for, for ruin and destruction and death because it's the natural path where we take ourselves. He says that God himself sees that. He sees the way that we are harming ourselves and he's coming to put an end to it. That God is going to step into human history and judge the nations for the ways that they have pridefully and arrogantly placed themselves on his throne. For, for the ways that they have pursued self and neglected the care of the neighbor and their needy next door. He says, God is coming to judge. In fact, in verse 25, or chapter 25, verse 2, he says, You have made the city a heap of rubble. This fortified city, this lofty city, this city of man is now a heap of rubble. The fortified town is a ruin. 
The foreigner's stronghold is a city no more, and it will never be rebuilt. Isaiah says that the the destiny of this city of man, this archetype of, of rebellious humanity against God, it is judgment and ruin of that city. The destruction of all things that have set themselves up in opposition to God. But there's, there's a hope Isaiah sees in the midst of the judgment. You see, the, the very next verse kind of gives us an idea of why Isaiah says God is going about the plan this way. He says, therefore, the strong peoples, the people of those cities, they will honor you. The cities of the ruthless nations, the, the, the city of man will revere you. You see, Isaiah doesn't see punishment as the the end game of the story. He he says that judgment is actually not about punishment. It's about restoration. You see, we we kind of have this misnomer about who God is and how he interacts with the world. And that when God sees injustice and oppression and and violence and all of the ways that humanity is at work in rebellion to him, that he's just angry and ready to like throw lightning bolts and strike people down. That's not God, that's Zeus. Actually, what we see in the story of Isaiah is that God's judgment is not just about retribution and punishment, but restoration. You see, what Isaiah sees is that the city of man, while it will be destroyed, from its ashes, God will recreate. See, again, we have this notion that that all of human history, that the world will just be like burned up and consumed and God will take us on a lifeboat to heaven. And what Isaiah sees is different. He says that God is, as things are being judged, they are actually being renewed. It is a forging and a fire, burning away of all of the impurities so that what is left can be made new and more beautiful than anything we could imagine. And so he sees this city of God in place of where the city of man used to be. And and he sees the city of God and it's this antithesis, this, this turning on its head of everything we see in our world. The city of man looks more like this. Instead of an exaltation of self, God is properly exalted. He's properly praised. He's given the worship that he deserves, that, that people live according to his rule, his reign, his will. And it leads to this concern for others where all people are taken care of. In fact, one of the most fascinating things is Isaiah talks about this feast that's a destination of all humanity. Notice what he says about who is welcome at this space. On this mountain, this new city, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. All peoples. Where the nations now and the city of man now is is concerned about getting what's ours and the scarcity mentality where there's not enough for everyone so we have to fight for what we want. One day we will be invited to a table where everyone is welcome. Where the feast is so abundant no one will be in need. Where everyone will have their choice of the, the most flavorful food they could ever desire because there is a concern for others and making sure everyone is taken care of at the table. Not only that, Isaiah looks at this feast and he looks at this new city and in verse 7 he says, 
On this mountain, God will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. He's saying, this will happen. The the destiny of human history, if the city of man is the place where, where death reigns supreme and where everyone is oppressed and there's injustice and violence, one day we are headed to a city where death will be swallowed up forever that we will no longer be plagued by sin and corruption and injustice and death. We are headed to a place of eternal life. Life with God and with one another. Where, Where literally the sorrows and the injustice that we endured in this life, God will wipe those tears from our eyes. Do you see the intimacy and the beauty of what Isaiah sees? The culmination of all human history is not judgment, but judgment that leads to rebirth and renewal, that God is king in the midst of the chaos because one day he will turn the chaos of our world into the calm of the city of God. That is where we are headed. That is the beauty of the story of what Isaiah sees. And so the question for us is, is what do we do with this? With with this vision Isaiah has of the future of the city that's one day coming, but we still live in the midst of the city of man. What do we do in the meantime? What does it mean for us? I I think the first thing Isaiah is saying in this is that that in the midst of the chaos of life, we hold on to hope because we know the destination for which we're headed. That, That the chaos of this world does not have the final say, the suffering, the sorrow, The violence, the oppression, the injustice will one day all be put to an end and death itself will be undone. So in this life, we can hold on to hope because we know what is coming. See, sometimes I I think we have this vision of of human history and I I wonder if it's influenced too much by, by like comic book movies. Because if you think about like uh, your favorite comic book movie, and I'm kind of a nerd, so I really like comic book movies, but like The Dark Knight is one of my favorite movies of all time. And in the movie, who's driving the plot forward? It's the Joker. It's the villain. He's got the plan, and the hero of the story is just reacting to the plan of the villain. And we sometimes, I think, have that view of human history that, that God doesn't really have a plan, that the devil or humanity or evil has the plan and God's just reacting to it and trying to put fires out wherever he can. He's just trying to catch up to all the evil we're committing in the world. But what Isaiah sees is something very different. He sees that God is on his throne in the chaos And that he is, everything is being orchestrated and working according to his plan. That the chaos, the evil, the the rising and falling of the nations, the, the oppression, the injustice, not that God is causing those, but that because he is so abundantly good, he is able to, to redeem those parts of our story and of human history to bring about the redemption of all things. God is not just reacting to the evil in the world. God is sovereign and enthroned even in the chaos and using those things to achieve his ultimate purpose. And so we can hold on to hope because God is perfectly faithful 
in the story of history. And the second thing I think that we can see in the midst of this story of the city of man and this ultimate destination is that the invitation for us is to, to celebrate the feast now. And what I mean by that is, as Isaiah looks at the future and he says, all of human history is headed towards this culminating event where we will experience this, this wonderful feast that goes beyond all imagining. And that that's the destination of all of humanity. That's where everything is headed. And what he is inviting us to do is step into that reality now. And in fact, we see that play out in the life and story of Jesus. Think about Jesus' ministry and some of the ways that he incorporated the feast into his ministry. What's the first miracle Jesus does? He turns water into wine at a wedding feast. What do they say about the wine that Jesus makes for the wedding? Choice, best wine they've ever had. And in fact, they're confused. They're like, why did you wait till the end to bring out all the best wine? We should have started with the good stuff. And then you see Jesus, he, he goes around and he's doing ministry and, and there are 5,000 people that come to him and they're listening to him teach and they're hungry. They, they don't have food, they forgot their lunch, they're, they're poor, they don't have enough food to feed themselves. And what does Jesus do? He turns five, or five loaves and two fish into to a feast where everyone has enough, where, where there's food left over because he is so abundant in his generosity and the enjoyment of the feast. And what does he do on the night before he's crucified? He gathers his closest followers together and he says, this feast that we are about to eat is to remind you of what is coming I have brought now. That the city of God is not just something that you are going to go to when you die, but because of my life, my death, my resurrection, you can experience the feast now. See, when we come to the table, when we come to the feast of communion, Sometimes I think we, we kind of set ourselves up short because we have these little wafers and this little cup of juice. And, and that's not what the feast was that, that Jesus was enacting. It was this celebration of life that God is bringing his goodness to bear in the midst of the chaos and suffering of our world now, that eternal life is available to us now and we live as if we are already participating in the kingdom feast that we are a signpost for the world, that all the chaos, all the suffering, all the, the evil that we see in the world is not the end of the story. That we bear witness to the reality that Jesus came to redeem all things. And so when we come to the table today, when we come to the feast, we come knowing that, that the end of our story is the redemption of all things because Christ's body was broken for us that Christ's blood was shed for us. Not just so that one day we can go to the city of God, but so that we can experience that city in a broken world now. And that we can live under his rule and reign now. And follow his teachings to, to deny ourselves and live for others where we're used to living for ourselves.
to make God the center of our lives instead of ourselves. That's the invitation when we come to the table today. So I'd invite you to come and partake and taste and see the goodness of our God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, as we come to the table today, God, may, may communion in our time together be a foretaste of your goodness. May it be a reminder, may, may we remind ourselves of the good things of life, that while one day we are headed for a feast beyond imagining, your life was given so that we could live in the city of God now, that we no longer have to participate in the city of darkness and evil, that, God, we can experience what it is like to have life with you. May you give us a taste of what that life is like, and may we live for you more fully because of your goodness. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.